0: Welcome to the New Testament Review.
1: Where every episode we discuss an influential piece, of New Testament Scholarship.
0: I'm Ian Mills.
1: I'm Laura Robinson
0: and we are both PhD candidates at Duke University.
1: And today's episode is on Canada Moss's article The Man with the Flow of Power pours Bodies in Mark 5:25 to 34.
0: This article was published in 2010 in the Journal of Biblical Literature. Laura, who is Canada Moss?
1: Yeah, so this is our first Canada Moss episode, which is exciting. Uh, we've actually had Canada Moss request before, um, but of course, you know Canada Moss is a contemporary scholar. She is still teaching at the University of Birmingham, and you know we we try to follow the twenty-year rule on our show, we, so we can get a sense of an article or a book's reception history before we flag it up as being influential. And a lot of Canada Moss's work that is most I think most discussed and most talked about and gets cited the most is pretty recent.
0: It's worth noting that we've discussed Canada Moss's work in the reception of other pieces of scholarship. So right. in Laura and Ben's outstanding G.E.M. Senqua episode they discussed her reception of that scholarship. So she's figured in the discussion of the reception of other influential pieces of scholarship but we haven't focused on her specifically.
1: Right. Um, I think most people who know about Candida Moss tend to know about her because of her work on martyrdom literature. Uh, she wrote the book Other Christs, uh, and then she wrote The Myth of Persecution, which is a more popular level work about how the concept of widespread Roman Empire-wide persecution came to be a story that Christians believe about their history in the work that that myth has done. So I think a lot of people are familiar with that work. And a lot of them are also really familiar with Candida Moss's work on the Museum of the Bible most recently. She's been a very vocal interpreter and critic of the Green family project and the uh, what they have been doing at the museum of the bible um but this is all from well before that
0: some of her earlier scholarship and of course this is an enduring interest um in stuff she's published more recently a lot of her earlier scholarship was on bodies and disability particularly how it engages with the idea of resurrection and so she's published on uh the nature of bodies in the resurrection in early christian literature and this article is on the pericope in mark 5 that has traditionally been called the woman with the flow of blood and her title uh, sort of inverts that traditional heading so instead of being the woman with the flow of blood we're talking about the man with the flow of power and that sort of reflects what her argument here is that we see in this pericope the evangelist or jesus inverting typical associations about certain kinds of bodies
1: So I'll just tell the story really quickly just to refresh everyone's memory about what we're talking about. The story starts with Jairus, who is a synagogue leader whose little daughter, she's 12 years old, is sick. And he goes to Jesus and in Mark, at least, he says that his daughter is on the point of death. She's about to die. But if Jesus hurries and comes to heal her, she will live. So Jesus follows him, and they go off to do this, and they're in this big, pressing crowd trying to get to Jairus' house. And a woman who, we're told, has been hemorrhaging for 12 years, has had this flow of blood for 12 years, uh, sees Jesus and decides that if she can touch his even the hem of his garment, she will be healed. So she goes up, and she does it. She grabs his clothes, and is immediately healed, and Jesus is confused perturbed he feels this happen and he starts looking through the crowd for who just touched him and the disciples have this sort of very hilarious sarcastic response to this that uh one of them says something like uh You know, you see the whole crowd pressing in on you and you ask who touched you. You know, everyone touched you. But the lady realizes she's been found out. She comes to Jesus and she tells him what just happened. And he is very merciful to her. He sends her away, says her faith has healed her. And while this has happened, while this whole delay has happened, uh, people from Jairus' house approach Jesus and they tell him that his daughter has died. Don't bother Jesus anymore. But Jesus says... No, don't worry, she's just asleep. And then he goes and he raises the daughter. So, that's the story.
0: Moss is going to focus in on the middle of this Markin sandwich. And we're going to talk about what a Markin sandwich is in a second. But her argument is that if you pay attention to ancient notions of health and disease, you can see that the evangelist is actually paralleling the woman's condition with Jesus' condition. The way the miracle happens creates a parallel between jesus and the woman with the flow of blood that is particularly obvious if you pay attention to how ancient people thought about sickness so we're gonna get into that in a second and then that's sort of the first half of her article probably two-thirds of her article and then she concludes with a reflection on other embodied gods porousness and whether this might be a sort of subversion or value reversal of ancient conceptions of health and sickness. So, we're gonna do those two pieces separately. Um, so, first of all, let's talk about Mark and sandwiches or intercalation. Uh, what are we talking about when we say that, Laura?
1: Mark in intercalation, it's a a trait that's really specific to Mark. It's a style of storytelling that Mark really likes that the other Gospels actually tend to shy away from or will even separate out. And what we mean by this is that Mark is telling a story and then there's a story that is sandwiched into the middle um, that takes place right in the middle of that story. So a really good example of this would be, like, the story of uh, Mark 11, the cursing of the fig tree. So Jesus uh, sees a fig tree, and he's hungry. He's in Jerusalem. And he goes up to the tree, and it's not fig season yet, so there's no figs on it. And Jesus then curses the fig tree, says, may no one ever eat from you again. And then he just goes on his way. You know, that's just... That the story does not conclude yet. He goes on his way, and then that's when he goes into the temple and, uh, and clears it out and uh, chases out the animals and the money changers. And then after that story, a day later, the disciples are going back through Jerusalem with Jesus, and they see that the fig tree actually did wither. So we have this story that happens in the middle of it. The conclusion of the fig tree story doesn't happen until after the, the temple cleansing story is finished.
0: And Why this matters is that Markan interpreters have long noted that these intercalated stories, um, these Markan sandwiches, the two stories seem to be mutually interpretive. So in the example of the fig tree and the temple tantrum, the failure to produce fruit seems to be the critique that Jesus levies against the authorities in Judea that he is enacting by flipping over the tables. And so depending on how you count them, there's six to 12 of these throughout the gospel of Mark, where we have two stories interlaced within each other that interpret each other. Um, And so you have the rejection of Jesus by his family and by authorities next to each other. You've got the paralytic and forgiveness in Mark two, when we're talking about the abilities of the son of man, Um, you have a series of intercalated, mutually interpretive stories And this is one of them, the Mark 5, Jairus' 12-year-old daughter and a woman with a 12-year-long flow of blood are intercalated. And interpreters have have conventionally read these as mutually interpretive. And Moss, of course, is not going to be challenging that. They've focused on people taking the initiative to go to Jesus. they focused on the role of women in Jesus' ministry. And these are all good and proper and important emphases of the Gospel of Mark. But Moss is going to say what sometimes gets brushed over in all of this, in the focus on women taking initiative, in the focus on purity interests, that Jesus doesn't have an objection here to being handled by someone who would be ritually impure. What gets passed over in all of this is a clear emphasis of the story being on this woman's disability, as it would have been conceived of in the first century. She goes to doctors, and she has this flow of blood and um, we're going to go into the details here in a second but Moss is going to zoom in on this particular story and the, this particular parallel um, and say focusing on this may help us understand all the rest
1: what place that a lot of scholars tend to focus their attention is on the issue of purity and impurity. Specifically, the woman who has been bleeding for 12 years, we're to understand that this is a gynecological bleeding. She's basically been menstruating for 12 years. She would have menstrual impurity. Um, Famously, the Torah treats women who are menstruating as ritually impure, which is going to be a problem if this lady wants to touch somebody. So a lot of scholars have really zoomed in on the fact that The hemorrhaging woman can't just go up to Jesus and ask him to touch her because if she does that, she will give him her impurity. So instead, she sneaks up on him and touches him herself, which we would normally expect to make him impure. But we have this narrative irony thing. It's actually the other way around. Jesus' healing flows to her and she is made clean. She is made pure. She is made whole. Um, another thing that scholars have focused on in this passage historically is uh, is analogous stories. Basically, the idea of somebody's clothing, having the traits of that person themselves, specifically healing traits. Um, so in Plutarch's Life of Sola, there's a reference to a woman taking a thread from Sola's clothes to have his luck. And then uh, we have reference to other charismatic healers or magicians in the ancient world that their clothes were seen as magical objects and healing objects. We have a reference to this in Acts 19 where uh, Peter and Paul's handkerchiefs or pieces of clothing of theirs are seen as having Magical status and being able to heal just like they are. So some people have looked at this passage and argued that we see something similar happening here that Jesus is a healer, but his clothes have this magical property as well. And this is something that we would expect for a healer in the ancient world. But I think Moss notices something really interesting here and pushes back on it. It's not the clothes that heal the woman. So it's that's actually not what Mark is saying. When Jesus says that he feels the power go out of him, he means it's going out of his body. He doesn't feel it going out of his clothes. So even though the close contact is this, you know, narrative hinge point in the story, it's Jesus's own body that is doing the healing. And we actually might get sidetracked if we make too big of a deal out of the clothes. <laughs> so Yep. Yeah.
0: Um it's important for us that it's it's out of him, not out of his cloak that the power goes. Maas is going to start by looking at ancient conceptions of health and illness to understand this woman's condition and how she would have been viewed. And there are different schools of thought. Uh, Obviously, ancient medical thought was not uniform. Particularly associated with Aristotle, there was this notion that health was all about balance and imbalance. But when we read... These people, people like Galen, who advocate this sort of balance, harmonistic perspective, they consistently characterize the popular view as being all about porousness and permeability, about this invasive notion of illness, that illness is something that comes in and infiltrates the body, and good bodies are hard and are cold, and bad bodies are wet, porous, and soft. And by good and bad here, talking about ancient medical writers, I'm just associating that with strength versus weakness, health versus sickness. And of course, there's a highly gendered aspect to this construction in antiquity. Women are conceived of as porous, wet, and soft, whereas men are hard and cold.
1: The image that Aristotle actually uses specifically to describe female bodies as opposed to male bodies, and therefore weak bodies as opposed to strong bodies, is as undercooked bread. You know, if you don't cook a piece of bread long enough, the inside is all spongy and wet and moist. So by the same logic, you know, Aristotle famously conceived of his women as incomplete men, that a body that has not d- doesn't have enough heat and doesn't have enough dryness is weaker and more fragile. And this is exactly Actually the kind of image that is called to mind when we think about somebody who specifically has an excess of bleeding, right? It's a sort of wet idea.
0: Right, her issue is a flow, and one of the concerns about flows is that you don't have the ability to regulate boundaries, the boundaries of your body. And Moss draws our attention to the fact that there's evidence that Mark is participating in this very conception of embodiment and health and illness. Um, The language Mark uses to describe this woman's healing by Jesus is the verb xerino, which is hardening or drying out. To be healed for Mark, or to have this bleeding restored for Mark, is a drying up and hardening. So this is evidence that this description, this language of flow and fount that Mark uses is not simply a mere description of the phenomena. This is a particular construction and how could it be otherwise really but there's a particular construction using contemporary medical categories and popular notions of embodiment mark is describing this in the language of wetness and porousness as weakness dryness and hardness as health
1: The emphasis on moisture and wetness as a source of ill health is particularly graphic in this story, because when Mark describes the experience of the woman being healed, he refers to the Pege of her blood drying up Pege is a it's like a fountain or a spring right it's like a it's a source of flowing water you know so mark isn't just thinking about this in terms of bleeding he like really, really draws a lot of attention to this water idea and that's not to say that mark is saying oh I'm going to make a point about wetness in female bodies is that this is the cultural language he has to draw on to explain sickness and health that sickness is excessive moisture sickness is an inability to regulate and it is specifically porousness it is an inability to to control the boundaries of one's body and to basically leak and to overflow this is the problem the woman specifically has
0: then argues that mark's description of jesus's healing of the woman creates a parallel with the woman's own condition based on this conception of porousness as weakness so the woman comes up touches his cloak and mark says immediately aware that power had gone gone forth from him jesus turned about in the crowd and said who touched my clothes the woman is able to get power from jesus without jesus's awareness or permission jesus has an unregulated flow of power he has a permeable body that is leaking power
1: the idea that Jesus's body and his ability to control his flow of power is not within his grasp seems to be something that the other gospel writers are not totally comfortable with. We actually see this when you look at Matthew's gospel. He removed this whole story of how she touches Jesus and then Jesus is suddenly confused and surprised to feel himself healing someone and then has to go find the lady he Just accidentally healed. Instead, when she touches his cloak, Jesus turns around and says, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. So we have this much more active role of Jesus in the story. Moss says, Matthew's redaction of Mark reconfigures the mechanics of the woman's healing. While the woman certainly believes she will be healed through physical touch, Jesus preempts her actions, turns to face her, and pronounces that her faithfulness has saved her. So we don't have this story of Jesus being sort of surprised by the feeling of having power emerge from his body. Jesus' unregulated flow of power is unique to Mark.
0: Right. And as I read Moss, the argument here is that Matthew's reception of Mark supports the idea that Mark's description of Jesus would have been somewhat embarrassing. Or at least put Jesus in the position in parallel with the woman who is ill. There is a pattern throughout the way Matthew changes Mark's stories. Matthew consistently removes Jesus' inability to heal in Nazareth. Matthew fixes the two attempts of Jesus to heal the blind man. Matthew is making Jesus better at healing and removing some of this Markan imagery of weakness uh, that we see in Jesus's acts.
1: So there's a par- there's a very deliberate parallel happening here between the female patient and Jesus. She is leaking blood. Jesus is leaking power. And one thing Moss calls out is the fact that scholars often pay a lot of attention to the similarity between Jairus's daughter and the bleeding woman they're both women for instance and uh, there's the 12 year link between the stories the little girl is 12 years old and the woman has been bleeding for 12 years but they miss the fact that the bleeding woman and jesus are parallels too they both have this quality they both are flowing with something The other contrast that people tend to miss is the contrast between Jesus and the doctors. Uh, The woman, the the doctors are not in the story, but there's a reference to them that this woman has spent all of her money on doctors for the last 12 years and the only thing that's ever happened is that she's gotten worse. So we have this idea of scarcity, the loss, she spent all this money on it and nothing happened whereas Jesus' ability to heal is so abundant it's beyond his control. It's not even it has nothing to do with her ability to pay for or not pay for it so she has spent all her money on these doctors who couldn't help her but jesus power is effective and it leaks away from him completely for free
0: yep okay we have what i take to be moss's first point and it's my favorite point of her article that there is a definite parallel between jesus and the woman which is not of course to deny other parallels or literary structures in the gospel of mark Um, and we have from us that paying attention to ancient discourses of medicine and health and bodies allows us to see this parallel she is then going to argue that and this is actually the language in which she frames it it is not necessary to read mark as describing porousness or permeability as weakness she says there is this idea in greco-roman literature of gods who are embodied so gods walking around the earth leaking light and therefore presumably leaking power that the inability to police or regulate the boundaries of your body is sometimes a indication of excess power and that by paralleling Jesus presumably as a, some sort of embodied god is the implication here with the woman who is leaking blood that mark here may be subverting or reversing the association of porousness permeability and weakness.
1: I think sometimes it's important to note when we're reading these articles that are drawing a lot from the language of disability studies and feminist studies, that a lot of times what's happening here is we're not making claims about what the author, him or herself, is trying to communicate or that, you know, I don't want to make it sound like what we're arguing is that Mark has made some kind of totalizing claim about porousness as a trade, or that Mark wanted you to go away from the story saying that, you know, oh, well, I guess it's it's good to be porous. You know, that's not that's not the point of the pericope. But it is interesting to note that there are ways in which ancient, you, you know, these ancient motifs and symbols might be used in a way that um, is more subversive than we might give it credit for. So a lot of times when scholars are trying to draw these things out, they're not trying to make totalizing claims about how these authors are using these, um, or about the, the goodness or badness or rightness or wrongness of these, um, of these associations, they're just trying to draw attention to the ways in which um, we might problematize you know, ancient structures of masculinity, ancient, ancient conceptions of bodies, and, uh, and see the ways in which other authors might be doing the same thing.
0: So I think this is really helpful, but I'm not totally convinced by I think what I've characterized as point 2, although it doesn't actually match up with Moss's own numbering system. I would suggest, and this is me not Moss, that there may be a a more thoroughgoing theme in Mark that this plays into that isn't quite the same thing as saying it's a value reversal of just porousness, but a larger vision of Mark doing a value reversal of what it means to have power. We've talked about in other episodes that for Mark, the crucifixion is Jesus's parodic exaltation, to use the language of Joel Marcus, that for Mark, Jesus's power, God's power, strength is manifest in weakness. And I'm not sure Moss would actually be comfortable with this language, although I haven't uh, ever talked to her, but it seems to me that if you take her first insight, that, that there is a parallel being made between this woman's flow of blood and Jesus' flow of power, that this this actually fits the wider Markan pattern of God's power, Jesus's strength, being demonstrated in weakness, in suffering. How does Jesus heal? He heals in a manner that would have been associated with sickness. This is the sort of Markan irony. Jesus rules, Jesus is exalted by being crucified. This is my own sort of editorialization of fitting a what I think is a really valuable insight from Moss into wider work on the Gospel of Mark. And also part of that probably comes from some of my skepticism towards seeing Christology in Mark as simply an embodied God. Mm-hmm. I think... I think the sense in which Jesus is the agent of God in Mark is a little more complicated than might be suggested by strong parallels with traditions about Greco-Roman gods becoming embodied and radiating power.
1: It's interesting that there is this parallel happening between the woman and Jesus. There's so much emphasis on her sickness and her weakness, and Jesus has some similar traits with that. It seems to be really consistent with this whole, you know, man of sorrows Christology that's happening throughout Mark. Um, that is, as the reader eventually discovers, a sign of Jesus' ultimate power and exaltation.
0: Yep. Great. So takeaways is that the man with the flow of power is a parallel with to the woman with the flow of blood if you pay attention to ancient discourses about bodies and medicine. And according to Moss, Mark may here be reversing or subverting traditional associations of porousness with weakness. And by paralleling Jesus um, and the sort of embodied God image with a sick person, suggesting that porousness should instead be associated with power.
1: Yeah, I think that's good. Thanks, Laura. Thank you, Ian.